Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the 51st Psalm, to Psalm 51. There's a bit of a mix-up in our bulletin. If you look on page 9 where our sermon text normally is, this is part 7 of our series through the Psalms, a series I've entitled Unfiltered because of the raw and honest nature of the Psalms, the unfiltered way in which the psalmists come before God with every emotion and every need, every trial and circumstance of life. That's very instructive for us, especially in 21st century America where we can be overly private or we can uh, feel the need to put on our best face even before God. And yet the psalms, again, are that reminder that we come as we are. We come unfiltered uh, because God's shoulders are broad enough uh, to bear whatever it is that we bring. And so we are in part seven of our study on the Psalms, but we have been hopping around, and so there was a bit of a mix-up. We're not in Psalm 7, it's part 7. We are rather in Psalm 51. And so uh, if you need a pew Bible, they're there for you, and I think Psalm 51 is on page 474. And so you're welcome to take a look at that, uh, page 474. But again, Psalm 51 And it says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. I've always been amused, uh, if you drive around town, I've always been amused by, uh, by real estate agents, uh, no offense if this is one of you, okay, uh, by real estate agents or by business owners who choose to use their own face uh, as like the face of the business, you know, like if you have a business card and it has your face on it, again, no offense meant, right, uh, or a real estate, you know, sign that has that person's portrait on it. I've always found it amusing, not because it's wrong, but it just seems like a lot of pressure, right? A lot of pressure. Uh, if you have one picture of yourself to put out to the world, you know, one portrait to represent your livelihood and everything you stand for, reputation, right? I mean, that's a lot of pressure. What picture 
would you select, right? What portrait uh, would you select? And secondly, what I always find amusing is there's always that gap sometimes when you actually meet like the real estate agent between the business card and the agent. Like, whoa, this was taken a long time ago, right? Uh, and so again, like how often do you update it? You know, what do you do, right? A lot of pressure. Uh, a lot of pressure to find the right portrait. Well, if you're striving for a perfect portrait of repentance, if you want to find a timeless, unchanging, doesn't need to be updated, if you will, uh, portrait of repentance, then Psalm 51 is it. Again, to use my cheesy illustration, Psalm 51 is like the glamour shots. Remember those? Okay, The glamour shots of repentance. And it's the, this beautiful portrait, this timeless portrait of repentance, not only because of its content, which we'll examine in a moment, just briefly. There's so much here. It's going to require more than one sermon. We're just going to look at a few things briefly in the content of this prayer and this repentance. But it's also this timeless portrait because of the character who stands behind it, because of the person who stands behind it. It's David, King David, the chosen king of Israel, the one who is the you know, messianic forefather of Christ, the one who is in the line of Jesus. You know, the son of David would come, Christ Jesus. This is the one who stands behind this prayer. In fact, David is not just the king of Israel. David is not just the messianic forefather, but who is he also? He's the man after God's own heart. The man after God's own heart. But the question is, as you read it, and, and specifically as you engage the context, I mean, how could this be? How can he deserve such titles? How can he warrant such titles? The man after God's own heart. This, if you notice, even probably like in the little subscript of your Bible, this is a prayer that he writes on the heels of arguably his most heinous actions. The worst possible thing David could have done. As we know, it's a time when he's king. And in being king, you know, he's up in his penthouse suite and he's glancing over you know, his royal domain into a courtyard. And what does he see? But he sees Bathsheba, you know, uh, scantily clad, what she thinks is in the privacy of her own you know, portico. He sees Bathsheba and he wants her. He desires her. And he's, again, he's king. He calls the shots if you watch Game of Thrones or anything like that, the king of the royal domain, domain calls the shots, right? And so he asks for her, he wants her, he goes and gets her, and he sleeps with her. And we know how the story unfolds. He sleeps with her, and she comes back, again, in true kind of HBO fashion, soap opera fashion, she comes back and she says she's pregnant. And so what does David do at that moment? Do you remember? Does he come to his senses? This is the man after God's own heart. This is the king of Israel. This is the example, again, the one in the messianic line. Does he come to his senses and cast himself on God's mercy at that time? Does he try to right the wrong? Does he come clean? No. No. He compounds his sin. He compounds his actions. What does he do? He goes and he calls for her husband, Uriah. And where was Uriah? While David's having a good time with his wife, where was Uriah? Uriah's on the battlefield. On the battlefield. 
protecting David's royal domain, protecting King David's honor. He's in the battlefield. And David calls for him, and we know, again, how the story unfolds. Uriah comes back, and David tries to, you know, paint the scene. He pulls out the white tablecloth and, you know, gets the best bottle of wine that he can find. And he encourages Uriah to drink deeply and to drink profoundly and to go back to his house and enjoy himself. And yet, what does Uriah do? He refuses. He refuses. He says, how can I do such a thing? Well, my, my men, my brothers are, you know, taking up their arms and they're out on the battlefields. How can I even enjoy myself for a moment? He's this man of just uprightness and integrity. And so David then goes to plan, at this point, C, I guess, right? He goes to plan C and he gets desperate. And he sends a royal decree, he sends a royal memo to the battlefield, and he says, put Uriah on the front lines. Put him on the front lines, and then at my word, withdraw all the men that he might be alone. Wow. It's crazy. It's crazy. And this is the man who then writes this prayer. I mean, can you think of something further, something uh, less worthy of being called here, a man after God's own heart? So how was this possible? How was it possible that the same man could be the author of both, the author of this just incredible, deceptive, you know, act of betrayal, and also this unbelievable and, and unfading, timeless portrait of repentance? And of course, we know the answer for those of us who trust Christ Jesus. It's because David is not a man after God's own heart because he's this you know, perfect, un, unflinching bastion of morality. He's not this perpetual beacon of morality and of good deeds, but rather David was a great sinner. He's a great sinner. But in being a great sinner, he knows his need for a great savior. And of course, that's our hope as well. That's our story as well. That all of us in different ways are great sinners. And yet we have found a great savior and so David knows this, he understands this, and he's able, again, to kind of latch onto the theme of our series, he's able then to come completely honestly before God, recognizing that he is accepted by God before this repentance even wells up in his heart. And because he knows he has just free welcome by God, he can be honest. He can lay before God even a sin so heinous as this. So crazy as this. And so let's just explore it briefly. Again, we're not going to be able to look at it all this morning. We're just going to take a few short bits and pieces. But look first at verses 1 and 2, and it says this. Again, have mercy on me, O God, according to what? According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The first thing we see here about repentance is that mercy is available from God, not based on the proficiency of those of us who ask. That mercy is available from God, not by the proficiency or because of the proficiency or skill in our asking, but simply because God is indeed that generous. He is indeed that merciful. Again, how does he say it? Have mercy on me, O God, according to my robust prayer life. No, right? Have mercy on me, O God, because I tithe regularly. That is nice if you do that, by the way, but 
Just kidding. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. And while this might seem like a a subtle difference, it's not, right? I mean, this is the difference between someone who's drowning in the ocean and a life preserver is cast out. And where does the credit then for that saving act lie? Is the credit in the strength of our grip upon that life preserver? No. Or is the credit based upon the one who is gracious enough to cast that line? And we see that here in this text. Our mercy is not given because of our proficiency, but because of the generosity of the one who saves. It's the question for all of us always is where is our trust? Where is our hope Placed. And again, this is, I think, instructive for us, particularly even today in the church, because it offers a bit of a corrective to sort of how the church looks and how Christianity is often presented. Too many times, as we know, people are only accepted into the church, or, or too many times people are only welcomed into the church and given fellowship in the church once they sort of uh, evidence their ability, if you will, to hold on to the grace of God. That we examine folks and we want to say, is your grip, you know, is it strong enough? Are you really holding on to what it is we believe? But if we're honest, all of us loosen our grip at times. All of us loosen our grip. But again, the beauty here is that mercy is given and grace is given. Whether you're holding on <laughs> To the gospel with one finger, or whether we're holding on to it with both hands, it's not up to us. Not the proficiency of our asking, not the proficiency of our confession. It's according entirely to the steadfast love of God, according entirely to his abundant mercy. And we see that there in the first couple of verses. But the second reality we see about repentance is found in verses four and five. David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then if you look in verse 5, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We see a couple things here that David brings up. We see the origin of sin, but then we also see the object of sin. Well, look at the, the, the origin first. David says again, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Why do you think he says that there? Why do you think in the moment of his repentance he thinks about his birth? <laughs> I mean, is he blame shifting? You know, Don't bring your mother into this, David, right? This is all you. Okay? Like, what is he doing there? I don't think he's blame shifting, but he is mindful of the origin of sin. Where does it come from? What does it affect? The answer is that it affects us all the way down, basically. That as crazy as it is to think about for a moment, that David's actions against Uriah, David's actions with Bathsheba, those aren't necessarily exceptions. Those are the rule. That sin has corrupted us all the way down. That these are not just, when we sin, 
you know, it's not just this one-off occurrences where the rest of our lives are doing pretty well. That might be true at least in action, but not in thought. That might be true in, in action, but not always in intent. No, that we are corrupt all the way down to our core. That our very nature is sinful. That we have inherited sin from birth, and we've only proven that to be more true as our lives unfold. And this is, again, why Christianity then, as it's presented to the world, Christianity can never be presented as simply behavioral modification. That if you just clean up a few habits, if you just clean up a few vices, if you just do more good than bad, right, if you're just a really moral person, then you're good to go. Then you are what Christianity is actually looking for. You're welcome to be recruited now into the church. No, 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 Christianity can never be presented that way. Christianity is not behavioral modification. Christianity is not this sort of spiritual you know, rehab, seven steps to a, a better you. No. Christianity is resurrection. Christianity is a complete exchanging of natures, that we are born utterly sinful. We are born corrupt down to our very core. It's as close to us as our DNA. And yet we are in need of a new nature. We are in need of a completely new life. We are in need of a rebirth. And again, this is what David understands, that he is sinful down to his core, and he's in need of a new nature. And again, that's the confession of all of us this morning. If we are a Christian, we have the name of Christ stamped upon us because we have been given a new name. We've been given a new life. We have indeed been reborn, and that's what the message of, of Christianity is about. It's a complete and utter exchanging of our natures. And that's why it's called good news. <laughs> I mean, what a gift. That's why it's called a miracle. That's why it's a supernatural work of God. Again, it's not just cleaning yourself up and doing a little bit better, but it's casting ourselves completely on God's mercy and asking for a whole new life, a whole new nature. But David also in these verses, if you notice, he speaks to not just the origin of sin, but the object of sin. And again, it's in verse 4, and he says this, Against Uriah have I sinned. No. Against Bathsheba have I sinned. No, verse 4, against you, God. Against you. And you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. This is helpful for us, I think. Because again, it's a reminder that the object of our sin, no matter what it is, goes ultimately beyond this world. That yes, David did sin against Uriah and he sinned against Bathsheba, but what was the sin underneath that sin? And the same for all of us. Idolatry. Idolatry. The desire to kick God off of his throne and to put us there instead. Because what did God say about the boundaries of marriage for David? What did God say about how to treat those who are under your care to David? All these things that he violates in his actions that God had put in place ultimately for his good so that even when he commits adultery, even when he commits this, you know, this, uh, this dishonest kind of betrayal, yes, they are sins against those people in the moment, they're ultimately offenses against God who put the proper order in place that he has now abandoned. That David has now said, no, thank you very much, I'm going to call my own shots. 
I'm going to do it the way I think it should be done. And again, that's true for all of us. No matter if it's these, you know, these great scandalous sins like we see here, or even just sort of what we consider innocuous, you know, petty, respectable sins, ultimately the same root is true. They are affronts on God's sovereignty. They are affronts on, on, on God's design. And we want to then put ourselves in his place. And so this is why then the wrath of God is coming and ha- against all sin. And while even the smallest of sins ultimately deserve his judgment, because again, they are affronts on his sovereignty, they are affronts on his holiness. And again, David realizes this. He's perhaps struck most by that in verse 4, that he hasn't just sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, but he's sinned ultimately against the holy God of the universe. But thankfully, thankfully David and, and we also recognize, though, where the conduit then of such forgiveness and mercy comes for that sin. And it's found in verses 16 and 17. Look there real quick. It says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You, would not, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Isn't it amazing here that David, the king of Israel, David, the one who lives during temple sacrifice, David, the one who is on that side of Christ, even in his moment of sin, recognizes through the Spirit that forgiveness ultimately doesn't come through those things. I love what he says here. You know, you would not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Again, David here understands that his sin is against this infinite and holy God. If he could find an infinite and holy sacrifice to then atone for his sin, well, he'd go get it, but it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Again, it has to be given from the outside. It has to be provided for us. And so again, here, this is where David recognizes that he is in need of a greater sacrifice. He is in need of a greater Savior. He's in need of that infinite sacrifice that only the holy God of all would accept. And thankfully, again, it's found in Christ Jesus, that greater lamb who is to come, the greater son of David who is to come. And he says, a broken and contrite spirit, one who cast themselves on the mercy of this sacrifice, God will never turn away. Never turn away. And then finally, look in verses 13 through 15, and it says this. When we come to know that love and sacrifice of God, when we come to know the atonement that is ours in Christ Jesus, what does it then produce in our lives? Look in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Look in 14. O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You see, this is now the fruit of repentance. When we come before God, just as we are, when we come before God with even the worst of our sins before him. But then when we come to know that welcome that we've received, and we come to know the nature of the forgiveness that he has provided. It then changes us. It transforms us. 
And it creates this posture that David has. Open the words of my mouth. Open the lips of my mouth. Let me now declare your praise. And that's my prayer for all of us, that every person here comes to know the sacrifice that God has made for them through Christ Jesus. But then in knowing that, we don't keep it here. We don't just let it sit inside, but we now take it out. We now allow the, our lips to be open that we might tell others of this. And again, what do we tell others? Again, we don't tell others that Christians are perfect. We don't tell others that Christians always keep the rules. We don't tell others that Christians' lives are, you know, devoid of all mess. No, in fact, sometimes our lives are the messiest. Look at David's. But we tell others that it's in the mess of our lives that God has done his best work that God has provided the most profound of mercies. And that's available to any and all who ask, any and all who seek it. And again, we see that here with David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do thank you for this reminder of your word. We thank you, Lord, that in Scripture, we're not often given great examples. That even David, not a great example, but he is a great example of repentance. And that's us as well, Lord. There's only one hero in Scripture, and it's your son Christ. And so we thank you for, again, this reminder that even one as David was capable of crazy things. He was a great sinner. And yet, like us, has come to know a great Savior. And so, Lord, would you remind us again that our acceptance before you, our welcome before you, our right standing before you, doesn't lie with ourselves, but lies with the perfection of Christ in our place. So we thank you. We praise you in his name. Amen.